Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss and debate timely macro topics and asset allocation views with the UBS Chief Investment Office, along with their third-party asset manager partners. Joining me for the conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, along with our special guest, Rick Reeder, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income and Head of the Global Allocation Team with BlackRock. Uh, Jason, Rick, it's great to be with you both and very much looking forward to what should be a productive and fascinating conversation. So welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, great to be here. Absolutely. So uh, before we get started, maybe in the way of some opening context, the good news is that the economy is more fully reopening and life is returning closer to a pre-pandemic normal. However, the economic data, while very strong, isn't quite as good as many investors were expecting even a month ago with disappointing data on job growth and inflation even higher than expected. So as a result, we've entered into what appears to be a more challenging phase of the pandemic recovery for both investors as well as policymakers. Since economic data is what will drive policy decisions, and both of those are what matters for investors, maybe let's start the discussion with the economy. So Rick, the fear of inflation it's front and center at the moment, and the primary debate is on whether it is transitory. So, Rick, what's your view on the inflation outlook? Uh, so, so I mean, I'll take a couple of things. First of all, I actually think the economy is doing extremely well. I agree. The point around the, the last employment report was uh, was disappointing. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to suggest otherwise. However, I think it, I think there was a big seasonal issue with regard. We spent a bunch of time looking at it. We think there was a seasonal adjustment. And, you know, non-seasonally adjusted, I think it was uh, 1.1 million jobs. And every number since then, from claims to the JOLTS data, the NFIB data, to the ISM surveys have all been like, powerful. The, the problem is in the economy today, which will get to your inflation question, is a supply problem. People around and or people who are not ready to go back to work. So I think, I think the economy is in really good shape. And I, I, think, I think, quite frankly, that we could hit high 7 GDP this year. And I think if... if uh, if the people present themselves, I actually think the employment numbers are going to be really strong. So what does that mean for inflation? So I think wages are accelerating, and, uh, and I think you'll see some. We saw it in the last report, and I think you'll see it's going forward. I think the uh, you see McDonald's uh, paying $50 a person to just, for, just for people to interview in, in places like Florida. There is there's a need for humans. And I, so I think wages will accelerate. I think there is some inflationary impact from that. I don't think we've seen this in the past 10 years. I don't know that it is. Uh, I don't, it's not like the '80s that it would translate into significant inflation, but some clearly. And then, and then I also think that, it, that, quite frankly, I agree with the Fed on that much of this is transitory. We broke down. I'm giving a presentation later this week, and I'm showing if you took the CPI report and you look at actually where it came from from uh, used cars, rental cars, obviously commodity demand, lumber demand, etc. That a lot of this is transitory. But I think you have to consider that inflation will be will be higher and that the disinflationary shock is uh, is over but i don't I'm, I'm you know i think we including this weekend we ran a bunch of analytics on the go forward inflation and i actually don't disagree with the fed on low twos type of inflation into the into the next couple of years however in the near term like you say the uncertainty is high i think the policy needs to evolve um and i think what's like you say i think the uncertainty it's created around overheating 
is uh, significant for markets because uh, some of the data we're going to get in the next couple of months from commodities to uh, to some of the pass-through you're going to get in some businesses and wages alongside of it are going to be if you are in a, if you if you were really concerned about inflation you're not going to learn a lot different over the next couple of months to dissuade you from your view. And Jason, I'm curious to get your take on inflation. I know we were speaking a bit about this this morning on the Top of the Morning podcast, but what's your current outlook for inflation, Jason? And do you have a pulse on the path forward for the labor market? What are your thoughts there? I would agree with much of what Woodrick said. You know, I think when you look at the actual details of the most recent inflation report, you know, 50% of the increase could be attributed to three factors, you know, used cars, you know, airfares, and hotels. And, you know, the latter two are all can, you know, reflective of the economy reopening up and a surge of demand. With those prices still less than they were a year ago, but some you measure on a month-over-month basis, there's a jump. Um, so some of those things we know is going to abate when we look at things like, you know, trim means. So they take off the, the biggest price moves and the biggest price declines. It could be related to one-off factors. These more sort of smooth measures of inflation that the Fed also looks at, you know, show, you know, a rise, but not nearly to the extreme that we've seen recently. Um, you know, on the labor market, there's always a perception that a tight labor market leads to higher wages. That translates into higher inflation, and, and therefore it's sort of a causal effect. But if you look at the last 30, 40 years, you know, the data is really kind of weak on that. In fact, there might be at best a contemporaneous relationship between the you know, wage inflation and CPI. And to some extent, it might be, you know, the causality might even run slightly the other way. As inflation goes up, that's more indicative of a tight labor market and therefore wages are going up. So assuming that the, the labor market, you know, the slack is still there, again, that should sort of ease some, some of the pressures. In some way, the real the point, I guess is Rick's last point, is that there's just a lot of uncertainty. And so whether inflation proves to be transitory or not, at least for the next few months for investors, you know, we all have to kind of deal with headline numbers that are going to be elevated, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. And the longer that persists, it raises questions about is it sustainable or not? And then also, what does the Fed do? Uh, so that's really more the challenge is trying to get through this eye of the hurricane as opposed to whether when we get the other side, things should be better. I think that's, uh, I think, a fair assessment. But the risks, I think, relative to where maybe they were a month or two ago, have gone a little bit higher in terms of this inflation level been elevated for a little bit longer than we expect. I think that that is a reasonable assessment. Maybe we can take a moment and pivot over to policy. And it is largely agreed that the Fed acted correctly at the time. By at the time, I mean at the beginning stages of the pandemic period to mitigate the fallout, the economic consequences of the pandemic. But you look at where we are today, we're in a very different place than we were a year ago. And given the economic environment that we just discussed, and Rick, I know you alluded to your thoughts on the path forward for monetary policy a couple of moments ago, but maybe to expand on that, Rick, what should the monetary policy path forward look like? And do you believe that the Fed is on the correct trajectory at the moment? So I think you described it really well. I think the Fed was genius in what they did uh, a year ago. And I thought, I mean, the ability to, uh, and I'm going to start with, I I actually don't think that interest rates and moving interest rates, A, is that exotic, or B, that has that great an influence in a modern economy today, other than optics and um, out the curve, I do think it matters, which we'll talk about. But I think what they did to, in the financing markets for commercial real estate, residential real estate credit was was unbelievable. Munis in that providing confidence at the top part of the cap stack. However, if you take that to today, the numbers are, and I did this on a monthly call did recently, where I showed that, um, just to give you an example, AAA subprime auto, was at 800 AAA, the top part of the stack where you finance subprime auto, was trading at 800 off. It's now at 15, one to five. 
we're o- it's over. <laughs> there is the Fed is putting too much liquidity in the front end of the yield curve, and by creating this crowding out effect by buying all the treasuries and agency mortgages, which is about almost two thirds the ag. And you know the ag when you, when you crowd out two thirds the ag, you force everybody into credit, you force everybody into trying to find high quality assets, and it's overdone. And you know I think the Fed is brilliant has been brilliant, but the vaccine came sooner than, than they thought or anybody would have thought, and the economy is, is doing extremely well. But I think adjusting the, the, uh, the QE program, is, its time has come. And um, listen, and I, I see all the comments about, about you know, we've got to wait, and this inflation is transitory, and I generally agree with them. But gosh, you can't keep putting 120 billion a month into the market. You know, when you can think about 40 billion a month for agency mortgages when they trade at negative 40 OAS, so that they make no sense to anybody, and the okay. banks have to buy mortgages, is creating the same sort of overzealousness in the in markets that we've seen in the past. And by the way, when the, when the top part of the stack gets really rich, it creates financing down the stack at levels that are also mispriced. So I know I think the Fed should move. It might, you know, I've learned in my career, though, invest what they will do versus what you think they should do. And uh, I think they're evolving. I think they're having those discussions behind the scenes. But listen, they're going to be deliberate. And um, and so I think, you know, part of why it's, up, it's uh, you know, keeping your your duration position out the curve moderate is, you know, they're probably going to be they're probably going to be slow in that taper discussion. But I think it's I think they can begin having it soon. And I think you'll see some and you did in the minutes a little bit. Um, a, a little bit of discussion there, which but they're going to be very deliberate. What about your thoughts, Jason? Will those conversations start to happen, do you believe? And are we on the right path at the moment with respect to monetary policy? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would you know, kind of you know, you know, call up and go, but we're excited. You know, there's what I think the Fed should do versus what they will do. And I think as investors, we have to kind of play by what the Fed is going to do. Uh, and I think in some way right now, what they've kind of almost a little bit sort of box themselves in and playing perhaps a little bit of a dangerous game because by changing their policy framework a year ago to move towards this average inflation targeting or over the course of the cycle, they want inflation to be 2% and therefore they'll allow inflation to get above 2%. You know, they started that review before the pandemic ever began. They've adopted this approach and it's like right to kind of out of the gate. They're being sort of, you know, tested on, on how well they'll, you know, kind of adhere to that. Uh, also Fed officials, you know, Chair Jay Powell has been adamant about, you know, they're focused on the labor market. They want it to be a very broad-based, inclusive recovery uh, that the Fed can therefore impact sort of the real economy in certain ways, you know, by achieving maximum employment. As we move forward and the inflation data gets more challenging, you know, I think some of their credibility could be at, at risk if they, depending on how they sort of respond to that, given sort of, you know, how they put out this, this inflation framework, this kind of focus on employment. So it just makes it sort of trickier. And I think all of us, and maybe the Fed itself, um, isn't quite sure of its own reaction function. You know, they're very much now data-dependent. But do they know exactly what that sort of rule of thumb is that they would follow given the data? And I think for investors, we have even less transparency, which just speaks to, I think, you know, some of the volatility this is going to create to, to the market. Um, but actually, I want to go back to you with the point that you made, you know, regarding some liquidity versus rates. And I think this is actually in a note, I think it was David, last week that you wrote, which I thought was interesting because it seemed to emphasize that, yes, hiking rates is important, but it's a pretty sort of in some way plain vanilla, almost blunt instrument that they're using to either cool the economy or, or stimulate if they're cutting rates. But in a modern economy, the way things are right now, liquidity or provisional liquidity is actually almost more important, uh, which is a little bit maybe counter to what you know people think. It's like they have to taper and then they, they start raising rates and it's higher real rates that are going to matter more. Am I kind of characterizing sort of what you're seeing correctly or maybe kind of 
elaborate a little more on how you think about the liquidity choice, especially in today's economy, as an instrument for the Fed. Yeah, I mean, I uh, it's totally right. I mean, I, I, you know, I first of all, I don't think front end interest rates make a hill of beans a difference. I mean, I remember back in two thousand one, two thousand two, uh, you know, when, you know, companies were borrowing off of commercial pay using commercial paper, and they were using the front end of the curve, and the banks, you know, ran a big asset liability uh, program where they were, you know, funding in the front. That doesn't happen anymore. They, you know, all these companies fund in the back, and the mortgage market funds off. Know the back. I mean, in the back, but certainly five to ten years, and um, you know, so it, you know, keeping the front end and, and and keeping all liquidity in the front end. The front end stands on its own. <laughs> like the front end, there's plenty of buyers of treasury bills yeah, globally. There's no need for more buyers of treasury bills, and um, and so the, you know, but you know, there was the, the, the system needed liquidity. I mean, similar to 2018, you know, the Fed was too tight on liquidity, and they realized it, and then they had to adjust. But today. You know they're they're they don't need to uh, they don't need to keep this much liquidity, particularly in the front end of the curve. I think the Fed, you know, like you said, I think real rates are too low today out the curve. But part of why they're too low is is this immense liquidity that's in the that's in the market, and some of it gets out because of the way the bank's getting deposits in, it gets out, it gets into the into the into, you know the five to ten year point. But I th- I think they can pair back a bit on that on that on that liquidity because it's not it's not just that the Fed's putting it in. The, the Treasury's general account, you know, between now and the end of July is putting another, what is it, $400 billion of liquidity that's already put five to $600 billion in you know, this year already. It's just the system, you know, doesn't need it. And it's creating these distortions in, uh, in markets. And I, I, I thought what Stan Druckenmiller said, you know, I know what Larry Summers and saying are just brilliant about, you know, these are a lot of uncertainty with these policies and, you know, you create asset bubbles. You create, you know, you don't know, you know, how much more inflation you create, and and so I think, I think the, uh, I, and by the way, woman's opinion, I don't think you create one more job by putting all the liquidity in the system. It's one thing to say we have, we still need eight million more jobs. I, I don't like keeping that, you know, pumping 120 billion into the system is creating one more job. I think fiscal policy does, and I think there's a lot of good ideas in fiscal to get there. But I know it's part of why I think. You know, they could move. And at your point, it's just it's totally right. I mean, it, you know, you can't be embarrassed and you can't just shift policy on a dime. I do think you can evolve it in a way that's still easy. I mean, I don't think the Fed should tighten it. I just think they should move away from emergency and be very easy. And, uh, because we're going to build a lot of debt in this country, but I don't, I don't think we need to be like the same policy we were nine months ago when we didn't have a vaccine. So Rick, I do want to run with, you brought up fiscal policy. I want to run with that for a few moments because there are no shortage of proposals being debated and discussed in D.C. at the moment. All carry with them substantial price tags. So from your vantage point, Rick, what do you believe is likely to pass? And Rick, how do you view the combined policy impact on the economy in both the near and long term? So that's a hard question. <laughs> the, uh, you know, predicting how these politics are, are working through, I think, is really is is hard. I mean, it, it appears to me, and I'm going to reading the tea leaves a little bit and work with our, our internal people. It seems like the bipartisan negotiations, you know, seem to be a bit of an impasse. I mean, they've set a sort of de facto Memorial Day weekend uh, as a sort of a soft deadline. Um, you know, it, it certainly doesn't look like they're coming together, and it looks like the Democrats are going to have to go it alone. And, um, you know, which, you know, it's going to be unclear in terms of how much will get done through that, through that process. But we're going to get, 
you know, I think some interesting things, you know, sometime later this week, we're going to get President Biden's fiscal 2022 budget, which I think is also going to be really interesting in that, you know, what tax increases are going to come alongside which for markets is a, is a really big deal. Um, and it'll be interesting to see as a marker for where, where he's going and the, and the thoughts around, around where this, where the fiscal is going to go from here. By the way, there's some, there's some other dynamics around fiscal that I think are worth talking about. One is the Senate is, and maybe there's a bit of tangentialness, but the Senate's considering a bill to address strategic competition with China this week. People underestimate how big a deal China is to the global economy, our relationship with China, the semiconductor. I mean, there are so many intertwined dynamics. So anyway, I'm very focused on that. Um, the other thing that I think is is going to be very interesting around, you know, where we go with regard to uh, not just some of the spending on this fiscal plan around infrastructure, but also things like education, job training, and, and child care. And I think all these things are, are going to be really impactful. But I, but I just want to talk about one thing with regard to markets. It's something very different. With, you know, in CNBC, they like to just talk about the number, like here's the size of the program. But there's something very different around what this, whatever this, whatever the agreement is, or whether it's done through reconciliation, or how big it's done. But this new program is going to be is going to be scaled in over a, probably a period of ten years. And so you don't get it's not that one time shock to the system like like this fiscal was that you functionally helicopter money. That this is going to be phased in over a period of years. And um, so it's going to have an impact, you know, roughly, depending on, let's say you got a couple of trillion dollars of it, let's say it's a couple hundred billion per year. So it's less than a percent nominal GDP each, each year. Um, and, you know, so it's it's very different than just looking at the straight number. Uh, but the amount of debt financing that's going to come on the back of it is pretty significant. You know, we think there's going to be net a trillion seven, a trillion eight of Treasury financing, net of what the Fed does next year. So there's. There's an awful lot that is going to have to be financed around this, you know, relative to what happens with regard to taxes. So, I know there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of political rancor that is uh, that is at play today. But uh, but there's some parts of it that are going to be, I think, really important to understand, and then some that are underneath the surface that will have a have a big impact on markets. Like I said the China one is interesting. I think some of the, by the way, you know, there's also talks on. Um, had to, had to think about semiconductors and the domestic uh, protection around the semiconductor industry or support for the semiconductor industry. You know, that gets into semiconductors in Taiwan, et cetera. So there's a lot of things for markets to, to chew on, you know, away from just what that one number ends up being in terms of fiscal stimulus. To your point, Rick, there's clearly a lot to unpack with the fiscal policy element, and there's a lot that investors could digest. So, Jason, what's your take in terms of what kind of fiscal policy might ultimately get over the finish line and when? All right, so I kind of break this up into two parts. One is like what you know, potentially could happen and what we think could happen, and then what are the implications? Uh, you know, right now we have these proposals, but they're pretty general. You know, there are 10-page policy statements that have been put out by the Biden administration. I think by the end of this week, we're expecting to get something called a green book from the Treasury Department that starts to you know, put some actual concrete numbers in terms of how much tax revenue could be raised, things of that sort, which I think this has been sort of a bit of a holdup, at least in terms of Congress and Nancy Pelosi sort of moving forward with, say, drafting a budget reconciliation bill. So I think the real negotiations are kind of heating up now, not just across parties, but I think really within the Democratic Party. And that's going to you know, ramp up, I think, post, uh, you know, the holiday weekend. You know, the numbers we're talking about, you know, at least what Biden's proposed is, you know, four and a half trillion in, in total spending, 
between either actual spending and tax credits, uh, you know, tax increases, that would be at least, you know, 50% of that. I think the reality is it's going to be the numbers will probably be like, you know, half of that, so both in terms of spending and tax increases, maybe even a little bit less than half of that. And there's different scenarios where this could play out. It could just be entirely, you know, a democratic past legislation. There could be some sort of bipartisan outcome. I think that's, that's less likely. It could be broken up into different deals, you know, one that's pure physical infrastructure, then another deal that's uh, done to reconciliation uh, that contains more of the kind of, the, you know, what the Democrats want to achieve. I mean, there's also a possibility nothing gets done. This gets bogged down entirely. But given that Biden is, at this point, kind of staked his presidency on this, I think the, the chance of getting something done is at least, you know, 75, 80 percent. Because, you know, I think if, if he fails here, this is this is a very bad, kind of like a big blow to his presidency. So something that's likely to get done, you know, as always, it's, you know, the devil in the details. I think sort of like Rick, there's a lot of, I think, potential good that could come out of this, um, you know, in terms of, Thinking not so much cyclically whether this enhances growth next year or the next two years, but sort of longer term, uh, you know, whether it encourages investment in, you know, sustainable investing or sustainable areas in green tech, uh, you know, things that can enhance long-term productivity through different infrastructure investing. There's already, I think, a lot of incentive, and we're hearing anecdotally about companies ramping up CapEx investment. And there's always been a sort of a econ 101 textbook fear that, you know, more government spending crowds out private investment. In this case, the combination of, you know, hopefully smarter fiscal policy with monetary policy could actually crowd in private investment. I think there's, there's elements of that could encourage, you know, labor supply growth to get sort of long-term labor force participation, whether it's women, older workers in there. So I think there's a possibility, I'm not saying this would happen, to really sort of do things that could move the needle more than marginally sort of all long-term growth potential. So I think there's an opportunity for the first time in a while to really do things that could uh, benefit sort of long-term growth. Uh, right now, I think that's probably shouldn't be the base case, but I think that that's sort of a scenario that's on the table. And those are things that I would be looking for the details that would be, you know, enhancing long-term growth more so than whether it means growth is a little bit higher next year or the year after. I do want to make sure we dedicate some time to hearing about your allocation views and based on the economic and policy outlooks we've heard thus far, as well as accounting for the run that markets have had over the past 14 months and this seemingly bullish investor sentiment. Uh, Rick, what should investors be doing in their portfolios to prepare for potentially quite disparate scenarios for growth as well as inflation? So, you know, I, I think we're going through, so if you take the you know, first half of this year and we've got, you know, incredible liquidity, incredible policy uh, moving forward, I think as you get in the second half of the year, it becomes much more ambiguous. You've got the liquidity for uh, post July 31 that starts to come down, which, which people underestimate how big a deal that is into into the into the markets. Second, you know the inflation discussion we had that becomes a bit of, you know certainly you know we're going to learn more about it, but that's uncertain. The uncertainty around taxes, you know, I would argue Chinese policy, etc. And uh, so there's a series of things. And by the way, second half of the year is always more volatile. I think. And, you know, by the way, growth, you know, what is the, the second derivative of the growth, I think, is, is going to be passing. So I think it's going to be choppier. You know what I've determined? I mean, you know, I think I still like equities. I feel like they're going, they're going higher. You know, the, when the Fed crowds everybody out of Treasuries, agency mortgages, I don't think you should fight that. And <laughs> I think real rates at these levels, just let them have them all because they're, they're, they're price strong. Try and get yield into, into, into the portfolio. You know, certainly we do a lot of it through securitized assets. Um, you know, credit market's still okay. No company's going to default unless there's fraud, uh, given the, the extraordinary amount of A free cash flow and B and, and B liquidity they have. And so just keep your yield up. I do think equities are going to perform. And, you know, I would, 
you know, I think this, you know, the world likes to likes to uh, narrow things down to like, and I get it on a tw- on a tweet. And you know, I spent a ton of time in, in uh, this weekend trying to look at companies, and, and, and I'm absolutely convinced that you know, can multiples move up a couple of turns one way or another? Absolutely. But there are so many good companies today, and, and um, they're companies throwing off huge amounts of cash flow that's durable. I mean, like good businesses. And I'm just convinced that you know, if the world is going to follow Bitcoin every second of the day, these companies will throw off, depending on who they are, 10 to 15% ROE or higher per annum. And I'm convinced, you know, it's just like, do what you do. You know, if you're a good investor, buy these good companies, just put them away. They're just going to work. And, and, you know, three years hence, you're going to be happy you bought them. And so we're trying to do more of that. Get underneath the surface, do good structures that make sense where you're not, you know, it's not distorted because of policy. And, you know, that'll just work and just, you know, grind away to try and generate, you know, good return in the portfolio without trying to do something spectacular in an uncertain environment. Jason, given the policy and economic backdrop outlook we've covered thus far, covered with market performance over this 14-month span, how should a portfolio be structured heading into the second half from your vantage point? So I think first, it's hard to be I think, you know, too pessimistic, you know, even with some uncertainty involved, so like in the market given inflation risks or policy risks. When you know, we go back to the fundamental issue of you know, growth being very, very strong in the U.S. this year, globally, I think we're now seeing the rest of the world, parts of Europe and other parts of developed markets kind of catch up as the vaccine rolls out further. When you look at earnings this year being for the S&P 500, you know, we're expecting 40% earnings growth this year. For smaller mid-cap companies, we're talking about like 60%, 70 80% type of growth. Uh, and certainly moderation next year, but still you know, around double digits. With that kind of earnings being generated, that kind of cash flow, yeah, it's hard to think be you know too pessimistic. Which is why overall for equities, it's you know something that we still think you know tilt your portfolios that way. I think where it gets a little bit trickier is like what's the the right sort of trade and position within equities. You know, is it a reopening trade? Is it a reflation trade? Is it more of an inflation trade? And there's certainly overlap between them, but I think there's also areas that you know some would do better than others. Uh, and I think one good where to think about it is like where do rates go? Because at least in the first quarter. If you told me like where the tenure was going, I could tell you which maybe sectors or regions would perform well. Uh, and so for rates are kind of range bound near term, but if we think they're ultimately going to rise to year end, I think that still favors things like, you know, some of the value stocks, um, you know, parts of international markets like we recently made Japan most preferred because it actually does well when rates are rising. So because there's uncertainty, I think positioning your portfolio, you almost have to be hedged against different potential paths, uh, you know, things that, you know, have done well in the past, you know, may not do as well in the fall going forward. And even in this in the past year, stuff that does done well, we think there's more upside, for example, in small cap stocks. But, you know, to kind of hedge against that, you almost need allocations to things that are maybe more a little bit more mid-cycle, you know, kind of companies as well. Uh, so that's where I think it's more diversification, certainly at an application level is, I think it's key for, you know, the second half of this year, because there's just uncertainty of which of these different paths we'll end up taking. I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together. 30 minutes goes quickly. And uh, Rick, Jason, appreciate all of the ground that you've covered with our clients and listeners on the podcast today. Perhaps as a closing point, we can reinforce and again, touch on some notable risks that investors really need to be mindful of. So, uh, Jason, perhaps we can provide our guest with the final word on this point. So, Jason, I'll ask you first, what are the main risks that you see and how should investors prepare for them accordingly? Well, a couple of flags. Uh, you know, one is just, I think, a policy mistake, you know, given the challenge that the Fed faces right now. They could either you know, end up, you know, blinking when they see high inflation for, for a few months and end up sort of tightening perhaps when they shouldn't. Uh, or on the other end, 
wait too long, and therefore the market believes they're waiting too long, or they do have to hike, you know, a few years down the line, they have to hike more aggressively. You know, either which is, you know, has different implications for, for markets, but like I think in the latter scenario, that means kind of a steeper curve, higher rates later on, which favors things like, you know, you know, all sequel potentially financials. Um, but I think they're that sort of policy mistake. Another one is a little bit more kind of, you know, broad. The, as you think about the economy coming out of the pandemic, there's clearly structural changes. I think it won't be evident really until we have you know, further distance from this, what's really changed or not. But for something like supply chains, the you know, concerns about the lack of supply, you know, maybe this doesn't kind of restart as quickly as we assume. You know, the global economy was built towards efficiency prior to the pandemic. You know, maximize kind of every dollar you can through supply chain you know, maximization. But for shifting more towards something that's resiliency, that transition may be a little bit bumpy. It may not go as, as smooth as possible. So the assumption of like labor markets kind of recovering as quickly as we think, maybe that won't happen. Maybe, you know, you know, ultimately this creates some margin pressure for companies. So I think that's more of a medium to longer term risk, but I think that's something that is, uh, you know, I think we have to consider that uh, there are challenges going from one economic mode of production to another that, that the pandemic may have triggered. Thank you, Jason. And then Rick, same question. What are the risks that you feel are top of mind and how might investors go about preparing for them? I mean, I, the, to me, I mean, the biggest risk is that you know, markets can get, you know, like last week can get really jumpy. And, and, you know, there are, because of the uncertainties and because of asset valuations, you know, markets can just shut down for a period of time. And so I'm just, I'm convinced today that so much of the market is, uh, is mispriced that I just think you got to build balance in your portfolio and fixed income. You think about, you know, last couple of years in fixed income portfolios, you could generate high single digit returns. And this year, I think you got to shoot for like in, in my SRO fund. You know, boy, I think we can generate three to four percent return in fixed income. I don't think the yeah, ag will be down hundreds of basis points. And I think if you just just try and generate, and we're just trying to do it with little O ones all the time, and then in equities, you know, just buy. You know, if we keep buying good companies, they are going to win. They're going to throw off that ROE that, that we talked about. And there are, you know, because of the world, you know, just you know, trying to figure out this is this theme or that theme. And boy, they, they've, and particularly recently, some good companies have come under some pressure. And uh, boy, if you can generate a seven to, you know, I think from here, I think seven to ten percent equity return, um, you know, potentially into the end of the year, um, you know, you end up with a pretty good year returns-wise. But I think it's all about balance and making sure you're not wasting money on assets, you know, that are trade that are priced too high, and just hold more cash relative to where where you think you can generate the return. Well, Rick and Jason, you have left our clients, our listeners, with a lot to consider across a range of topics that, of course, have direct implications to portfolio allocation. Of course, there's much else we could have covered, so perhaps that lends itself to a follow-up conversation at some point, though. It was very helpful to hear your insights, and thank you both for covering all of the ground that you did with us today. Greatly appreciated. Terrific conversation. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Rick, for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Absolutely. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, the head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Rick Reeder, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income and head of the Global Allocation Team with BlackRock. How Should I Be Positioned is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 